Welcome, everyone, to episode 130 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we're taking another look back at 2020, this time at an awards-buzzy film, Nomadland. With me on the journey, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Scott. Uh, it's it's nice to be here. It's nice to be back for a uh, quote-unquote normal episode um you know we've it's been a minute since we've actually done one of those because we had our you know we had last week we had a double episode we had our Sundance recap we had our two-parter best of the year um and it's you know been over a month now since uh we've had you know just a standard episode of the podcast and I'm looking forward to it if for no other reason that we'll actually get to talk about the news today which means that I'll get to do one of my favorite things, which is complaining about awards nominations. Um, so I've definitely been looking forward to, to that part of the moment or to that part of the show. Um, and yeah, we actually get to talk about a movie before that too, which uh, I'll, I'm looking forward to that as well. Yeah, look, I, I guess we could have we could have done like a pickup episode at any point in the last month for you to just it doesn't have to be a pickup episode. You could just rant it into a microphone for like half an hour and we could have posted it um, and we would have been fit. But Hey, instead, now you get a second half of the podcast all about uh, why Scott continues to hate every award show imaginable. <laughs> all right. Well, with that, as I already mentioned, today's episode will be focusing on Nomadland, which is the latest feature film from writer-director Chloe Zhao. It debuted last year in September uh, at the Venice Film Festival, where it won the prestigious Golden Lion Award. It stars Frances McDormand and as Fern, who is the husband or sorry, the wife of a recently passed away U.S. gypsum worker. There's a factory in Empire, Nevada. Uh, the the the, uh, the plant shuts down, and sort of this entire town, this entire zip code, if you take the first opening, uh, I guess, sort of like splash of the film, uh, just disappears when this mine shuts down, including Fern and her husband, who actually passes away. Fern then decides to pack up her life and sell most of, or store most of her belongings build out a van to live in and then travel across the American American West in search of work. Fern's life takes her to many different places, meeting many other van dwellers along the way, including real life nomads, Swanky, Linda May and Bob Wells, along with Dave, who's played by David Straithairn. Along her nomadic journey, Fern finds a new way of life and a whole population of people just like her who have been victimized by the Great Recession, but who have chosen to band together and live life their own way, not necessarily in rebellion against capitalism, but in an effort to liberate themselves from it to the best they can. Scott, simply put, did Nomadland live up to the awards hype surrounding it since its debut last year, where it won the prestigious Golden Lion, as I mentioned, or was this a film that lost itself somewhere down the road? Yeah, you know, Scott, um, yeah, I've been hearing about this one for a while, right? Even prior to Venice, right? It was it was playing at like the Middleburg Film Festival and New York Film Festivals and stuff like that over the summer. Um, and I uh, I was alerted to that um, by you know some of my friends. And unfortunately, you know all of that was all of those were sold out. 
um, by the time I actually um, got around to, you know, trying to get tickets for that. Those were, you know, I watched uh, like uh, Minari and One Night in Miami and those movies early um, because of those festivals. But Nomadland is one that I just escaped my grasp. Uh, and I was bummed, right, because I knew that this was my kind of movie. Just from reading the description, from reading the reviews, um, I felt like this was going to be something that I, you know, really enjoyed. And, you know, I qualified it during our best of the year show. I was like, look, haven't seen Nomadland yet. This could possibly be my top film of the year when I do see it. Um, and, you know, it's funny because we, you know, we talked about 2020 and, you know, it, it was a it was a very good year for movies. I think there were a lot of very good movies that were released. But I think the reason that we were a little bit um, more skeptical, maybe in relation to different uh, to previous years, to more recent previous years, uh, was just because, you know, I think when you watch as many movies as we do, you expect every year that you're going to see two or three like all timers, right? Like movies that you, you can point to and say, look, that's going to be one of my all time favorites. I mean, look, when we did our top 10 movies of all time recently, Scott, you had, I think, three movies from 2019 in your top 10. Right. So. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what we come to expect. And, you know, I loved Possessor. Right. That was my number one movie of the year. I thought it was incredible. It probably will be in my top 100 someday. But I do think that 2020 was maybe lacking in those types of movies. And it's funny now, though, that in the last two weeks, right, we've gotten what I consider to be two of those movies to some extent. Last week we, with Judas and the Black Messiah, um, which we were both very high on. And this, this week, I think, an even superior film uh, with Nomadland, um, which I think is, yeah, a movie that is going to... I mean, he's almost already into my top 100 and it will probably be uh, very, very high when it finally reaches its, you know, final resting place. Uh, I think this movie is an absolute masterpiece um, and it was everything that I expected it to be, everything that I wanted it to be and more. Uh, you know, it just it warms my heart that this is the film that is I mean. I say it's leading the best picture race. I do believe that there is, you know, some discussion about a couple of other films. We can talk about that later in the second half of the show. But um, it warms my heart that this movie is right there at the center of the conversation um, because I think it is it's somewhat unconventional. Right. It's a little bit minimalist. Um, there's a lot of scenes of just Frances McDormand sort of driving in her van or walking through these sort of camps. Um, where these van dwellers are, you know, parked for an indefinite amount of time. Um, and there's this beautiful, beautiful score throughout the movie, piano driven Ludovico Einaudi. I never heard of the guy, but he is the composer here. And um, yeah, he, it's one of the best scores of the year for sure. It's absolutely beautiful. And just, you know, there's something so serene um, oftentimes about, um, you know, some of these scenes again, where she's just driving through, she's walking around, uh, and, you know, you're listening to this beautiful music. A lot of people have compared it to the films of Terrence Malick. I have to say, I got an emotional resonance from this movie that I never have gotten from the couple of Terrence Malick films that I've watched. Um, but I do I do understand where those people are coming from. And in terms of sort of the amplifying the beauty of nature, um, I think that's, you know, consistent with a lot of Malick's films. But, um, yeah, I think this movie is... It's political without overtly trying to be political, which I think is something that I really appreciate uh, because I think, you know, uh, we, we've talked about a few of these films in recent years, movies that are trying too hard to send a message. This movie isn't trying to send a message, but it does send a message, right? Because 
it's it's almost impossible to depict these people's lives as they are, right? And these people are real people. I mean, you know, again, you said it yourself. Some of these people are real life nomads, um, and this these are real stories that are being told. Like a lot of this was compiled the stories of real life nomads. Uh, it just depicts their lives, and it's impossible to depict their lives without some sort of political branches, you know, shooting off from that. Um, and I think, you know, but, but I mean, I think that's the intelligence of Chloe Zhao's filmmaking is that she knows again, when to just sort of step away and let her stories, let her actors do, you know, do the, do the legwork here. And she doesn't try to push too hard with any sort of agenda or message in the film, but you get, you get one coming across strongly, you know, about American economic system, about poverty and, you know, the, again, the situations that these people find themselves in after the factories closed down um, and that, you know, their zip code is, you know, gone, like you said, and um, this is the only, you know, sort of uh, way to, to make ends meet for them is to, to go on this, um, to, to become van dwellers like this. But, you know, I, th- I, 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 in my letterbox, I compared this to the Florida project because I think this movie I, I don't want it to sound like a depressing slog because it's definitely not that at all, right? It's a beautiful film. Um, you know, there are some comedic moments in it. Um, and I think it really, um, you know, in addition to just amplifying the beauty of nature and, and giving you appreciation for just sort of the beauty of the American West, um, it's, it's also, you know, highlighting some of the joys that the people find in this life, right? Because it's not you know, we may look at, you may, you may hear the concept, you may hear about these nomads and think, oh, that must not be much of a life, right? That must be kind of a miserable life. Well, no, we see that there are, in fact, a lot of, you know, joys that they are able to get out of this life. And, you know, that is kind of what is driving Francis McDormand's character to some extent, right? Uh, driving Fern is that, you know, it's, it's an interesting character because at several times in the movie, she's offered a way out of this life, right? She's offered a place, uh, you know, a, a place that she can go and live a comfortable life. And, um, you know, maybe it's not the same as she had with her husband, uh, but something similar to that with, you know, people who care about her and, she, you know, she has a roof over her head and, you know, is provided for and all that. And she really has to grapple with whether that's something she wants to embrace or, um whether, uh, you know, she wants to continue her van dwelling life, whether that is something that is more fulfilling to her at this period of her life. Uh, and I just love, you know, I love these movies that have, don't have much plot that just kind of are about these individual moments and individual stories. And that is so much of Nomadland is just Fern going from place to place, from person to person, listening to their stories, um, you know, learning to empathize with them. Um, and, you know, it's 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 a tale of a whole community, even though it is really driven strongly by this one central figure. And, you know, I can't think of a better person to play that figure than than, uh, you know, a commanding actress like Frances McDormand, who um, is, you know, always brilliant. And again, you know, has thrust herself right in the Oscar conversation for, um, you know, her what would be her third win. Right. Uh, which I think only a, a two or three actresses have ever done. And I. Uh, you know, as much as I like to be a person who's like, uh, let's, it's time to spread the wealth, right? Let's let some younger actresses or, you know, people who haven't won before, let's let them win. Like, I just can't even, if Frances McDormand wins again, I just kind of have to smile and nod. Like, yeah, like I, I can't deny, um, 
you know, how, how brilliant it is what she's doing here. Um, and I think it would be it would be richly deserved if she does end up with that Oscar. I'm not sure if she will, but um, she's definitely in the conversation. And yeah, Scott, this film is is just beautiful. And, um, you know, after I, I was luckily lucky to see it in theaters and IMAX for my first viewing. And after it was over, you know, I had one of those experiences I think we've had before, right, where fades to the credits, you just kind of sit there and it's like, not only did you just have like one of the great movie going experiences that you've had, but you've, it's, it's a profound life experience. It feels like, a, you know, I, almost, you know, with Judas and the Black Messiah last week, we talked about how it's just this whole story, this whole, um, you know, part of history that I never knew. And it's kind of a similar thing here, right? We're just opening up uh, our perspective to this entire community of people um, who, you know, are underrepresented on screen, again, just like the Florida Project, I think, was doing, um, and whose stories don't often get told in popular medium. And I just felt like my mind had been expanded after watching this. So I could not recommend this movie highly enough. Again, I used the M word at the beginning, and I'll use it again. I think it's a masterpiece. Yeah, I mean, no Nomadland is a very particular kind of movie, right? Like, it is one that sort of blurs the lines between documentary and you know narrative feature, right? And I think that it does it in a way where if you kind of walked into the middle of it or you didn't really, or you walked into the theater and you didn't really know anything about it, you just showed up for whatever reason in the middle of a pandemic and like, yeah, this seems like a cool movie to watch. It's in IMAX, I'll watch it. You'd be forgiven not realizing that it actually is, you know, a, a narrative fictional feature because not only is it, not only the subject matter, of course, being inspired by, or in some cases, you know, really are the the true to life events that are happening out in, you know, the American West and, you know, representing real people and real experiences, but it's also, it, it meanders and sort of wanders about in a way that wouldn't be out of place in some of the documentaries, um, you know, that we watched, we watched just a few weeks ago at Sundance, right? Like thinking of something like cusp or, you know, even try harder, which I know you didn't see like it, it wanders around without really, without really in any sort of seemingly at least intention to make a statement, kind of like what you're saying around the, the politics of the film, right? Like it, it certainly is political, but it's not preachy. It's not trying to shove a message down your throat. It's just trying to present to you a reality that, you know, I can speak for myself at least like that I didn't know really existed or, if, or if I knew existed, I certainly didn't, you know, appreciate or understand or, you know, the whole vocabulary of, of, you know, deeper knowledge types of words there. And for that type of, you know, enriching life experience that you're talking about, I think that Nomadland really does corner the market and excel across like all the dimensions you could want from a film like that, right? Like you have, again, like the true to life stories. And maybe most importantly, if you are going to end up being a narrative feature, you have Francis McDormand, you know, in, in the lead role. And I think that, you know, a lot of the films that we talked about, and I'm sure a lot of the people that we're going to talk about in the actress race, you know, past years, this year, right? Like they are usually capital A acting performances. And, and I like those maybe even more than you do. But like you think about someone, you know, like a Vanessa Kirby, who, you know, if she gets if she does end up getting nominated for the you know best actress category, at the Academy Awards, it's going to be because of that scene where she does a bit, you know, capital A acting job in that scene. And I think that's the case in in a lot of ways for a lot of the people who find success in that category. And I just find it really remarkable that I feel like Frances McDormand's like biggest moments in her career, right? Whether it's Three Billboards, which is her most recent win, or you, know, you go back through all parts of her career, like it. Yes, she does have those moments, absolutely. But it feels like the 
inertia of her performances often lie in just sort of like the naturalistic act, like she acts natural, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know of a better way to say it, right? Like that sort of lower key um, acting. And I just can't think of, you know, for the type of movie that it is, I can't think of a better person who a can do that job, but B do it. So, you know, do it so effectively and in, in the way that it needs to be done. And I, and one of the things that I just find super interesting about this film is that yes, Chloe Zhao, I feel like is the driving force behind the movie. Like when you, when you say or talk about Nomadland, you're talking about Chloe Zhao, even though Frances McDormand is spectacular in it. I mean, this is a Frances McDormand movie. I mean, she came to Chloe Zhao after she saw a screening of the writer and said, Hey, I have this idea of a movie. This is, these are the people that I want to like explore a film about. And she presents it to her, pitches it to her and convinces Chloe Zhao to do it while she's like juggling, you know, pre-production for Eternals. Like, it's just like pretty remarkable stuff that I think that they're doing. And, I think in the conversation, it's really easy to forget that, you know, the person who really made this movie happen, not necessarily the person who made the movie what it is, but the person who made the movie happen is Frances McDormand, which I just think is really interesting. And I think it adds a layer to, you know, her Oscar eventual, I think, Oscar campaign. I don't know whether she'll win it or not. I think I could see it going either ways. I think the campaign for it is only going to be picking up now that it is out on Hulu and is, you know, watchable, you know, watchable by the vast majority of the public. But we'll we'll see. I think that it's well deserved. I think that I would point to her probably for my favorite performance of the year so far. And, you know, I will say that I think it's a bit of a weaker year, but I don't think this is a I don't I think this is a performance that would stand out in other years as well. Um, so overall, a really remarkable film. I just feel like I have a lot of things to say about it. Um I don't know how many of them are, will come up later, so I want to try to get some of them out now. But the the score you know, you said you'd never heard of, uh, remind me his name already, because I... I'm Ludovico Einaudi. Yeah, well, he's also doing, he also did the score for The Father, which is yet to come out this year. So, hey, if it comes out this is, week, actually. Yeah. It comes out this week. Is it not a wide release, though, yet, is it? I, I thought I saw it. I'm not sure. Summer. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I guess it is March, <laughs> a couple days. Yeah, so I think it go. might be a wide release. I don't know. Cool. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it's Sony, so it's going to go to theaters, and then at some point it'll pop up on VOD, but TBD. Maybe I was looking at the VOD release. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So I mean, I I don't know when the last time someone got double nominated in this in the best score category. But the father is a film with a lot of Oscar buzz behind it. So if the score is good in that too, he might find himself in contention for multiple slots of the five. Although, and I think it's been a pretty strong year for score overall, to be honest. So I, I'll be curious to see if that would actually happen. As for you know, you talking you talked about the music. I also want to talk about the cinematography, which is done by Joshua James Richards, who is Chloe Zhao's partner. Uh, both in life and in filmmaking. So they obviously have a really good connection and are able to really understand what, you know, is going to work really well for the vision of the film itself. This is a gorgeous an absolutely gorgeous. film. I couldn't imagine seeing this in IMAX. Um, some of the shots, I mean, we talked about sort of, it doesn't have too much, you know, quote unquote plots behind it or plot behind it. But what it does have is these several long tracking shots of, you know, um, the American West sunset with Francis McDormand walking around these different sort of camps, um, trailer parks, RV parks, whatever you want to call them. And it's just, it's just stunning. It really is gorgeous. Um, I don't know if he'll break into the conversation for best cinematography, but it really is a gorgeous film. And even though I watch, I mean, I have a pretty big TV here, so it's not like I was, you know, squinting at a small screen, but I, again, if you can see it in the theater on the big screen, I'm sure it would resonate even more. You know, for, for me, I think one of the things that doesn't quite get me to where you're at with the film, although I do really, really, really like this movie, I think it's one of the best films of last year, is that I think it it does sort of 
it, 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 it kind of leaves me in the lurch for like a really long portion of the film, like not really having much going on. And that that's, I think that's fine to an extent, but it got to a point for me where I didn't really get what the point of the movie was besides just sort of this sort of expose, which is totally fine if that is end up what it being, but it felt like there was some like that the filmmaking was trying to, to get something more out of it sort of early on with the scenes uh, with Bob Wells. And it comes back around to it at the end really effectively. I think, I think the last like 10, 15, 20 minutes of this movie are really, really powerful. Um, I, I think that it, it really build it builds itself up to it and really delivers, I think. But for me, I, I was just feeling I was, I was a little bit bored in a moment or two. Um, but that's only the, only the minor, only in the minor case, right? Like never, never too much. So, but I thought it was sort of the, the vignettes of the different, you know, of, of Fern and these different, you know, real life van dwellers coming together, whether it's swanky or Linda May, like I felt that, that it was there and it was something to latch onto moment to moment. Um, but I think I wanted something a little bit more earlier on, which is the only small critique that I would say held it back from getting it all the way over the hump for me to talking about something like Judas and the Black Messiah, which, you know, I did think was better than this, but that's uh, trivial, I think, in the grand scheme of things, because these are two of the best films of the last 12 months, for sure. But with all that ranting out of the way, I think we're probably just done with the podcast at this point, because we talked forever right, already. Yeah. <laughs> but why don't we talk a little bit more about Frances McDormand? I certainly gave my spiel. I talked at great length about what I thought of her performance overall. So I'd love to hear more from you. Yeah, I mean, look, I think I'm going to make a bold claim here, um, but I think one that is justified. I think that, you know, I have my favorites actress-wise. Uh, I think Frances McDormand makes has a very strong case for being the greatest living actress. Um, and I think this is just another, you know, film in that lexicon. And I think you hit the nail on the head, Scott, with what you were saying earlier, that it's just like the natural. She's not a like and i don't mean this as, as a slight to her or anything she's not like super glamorous right she doesn't have a movie star appearance to her um yeah and so that's why i think she's a perfect um choice for this right like she you know she's not again she's not dressed up glamorously or made up glamorously she has the short hair she has this kind of like weathered face um i think she fits in right with the rest of um these nomads and yeah i mean of course we know it's Frances McDormand, but I think she disappears into the role of Fern more than like, I mean, you know, you couldn't throw that many actresses in in here. I mean, you couldn't throw movie stars into this role for, for sure. Like, I mean, the, it, 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 they Meryl would clearly Street. stand out. Right, no, no, I, I don't. Well, yeah. and, and here's the thing, right? Like, I think Frances McDormand, Meryl Streep is, for me, I mean, a great actress for sure, but she's on auto, she's been on autopilot a little bit for the last decade of her career, I feel like. I feel like she's just kind of taking pretty safe roles, stuff that is probably gonna get her an Oscar nomination, you know, maybe the random supporting role here and there. Um, the prom. She just kind of pops up. Yeah, or Little Women, right? She just kind of pops up to be like, hey, look, it's me, it's Meryl Streep. Um, whereas I think Frances McDormand is like in the, possibly the most interesting phase of her career, right? And, the, and they're not that separate. Uh, age-wise, like I think Frances McDormand is a little bit younger, but um, like, you know, we're, she's doing films with independent filmmakers, right? With Chloe Zhao, right? You said she she approached Chloe Zhao for this film. She, you know, Martin McDonough is who she worked with for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. She's worked with Wes Anderson and, you know, uh, several of his films recently. The um, Coen Brothers, I mean, that's how she became famous and she did Hail Caesar. Well, she's married too. to Joel Cohen, so um, yeah. that's, you know, that's the reason for that, but 
Um, You're right. She really yeah. hates making films with him, but because they're married, she just has well, to do it. Well, she has criticized him for not having uh, any good <laughs> female characters in his movies. Very recently, there was a story about that, how she kind of ripped him a new one because her, his female characters are one-dimensional. But, um, but yeah, no, she's working with auteurs, right, this deep into her career when she doesn't have anything to prove anymore, right? Like everyone knows how great Frances McDormand is, um, but she still wants to creatively challenge herself. And that's just something I have the utmost respect for. And I think that's why I think she deserves to be, if not, you know, the the choice for greatest living actress, at least in that conversation. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that kind of sums up my feelings on her in this movie. Again, I think because it is a, it can be a quieter film at time, it can be more minimalist. I think her face has to do a lot of the work and it, it absolutely does do that. I mean, you know, I, I think um, the sort of serene, peaceful moments there's, but there's also a lot of emotional tension with her character again, from the fact that, you know, what is she going to do, right? Is she going to settle down with her family at one point, which is an option. Is she going to settle down with David Strathairn's character who, you know, pops up and, her life, <clears throat> or is she gonna, you know, keep going on the road, down the road with this sort of family that she has built among these nomads? Um, and I think um, a lot of that conflict is felt in, you know, her her body language, her facial expressions, as well as, you know, her dialogue. Um, and yeah, I, I, I it, you know, you you said it's it's been a little bit of a weaker year in terms of this category, and I think you're like correct and incorrect to some regard because I think if you look at the performances that are getting the um, that getting the Oscar attention, I think you're right, right? Like I think like Vanessa Kirby, Carrie Mulligan, these people aren't the ones who sort of blew me away from last year with their performances. Um, but you know, if you go further down the list. I mean, much further down the list, the people that aren't even getting talked about, like Julia Garner and Jesse Buckley and Sidney Flanagan and all of these people, I think these are really, really exceptional performances. And I think Frances McDormand belongs among them again. Right. I, I, it would be difficult for me to rank some of these people that I've just talked about. Um, but I think that she absolutely deserves to be in there and is one of, you know, four or five people in this race where if they, again, if they win the Oscar, I'll just kind of nod my head and say, yeah, I mean, I can't argue with that. Um, I think she's tremendous. Yeah. Once upon a time, Sydney Flanagan's stock seemed higher than it is now, but unfortunately it seems to have fallen. Yeah. Reg yeah. I mean, regardless, look, I don't know if I have much more to add on this just cause I, you know, ranted for so long about how I think she really is the perfect person. Yeah. I mean, look, I think the, the greatest living actress conversation, is such a tricky one, um, and one that I find like really difficult to even compare different types of actresses. And I, and I think that what I will say is that, and I think this goes off to what I was saying earlier as well, like she, uh, of the type of actress that she is, I don't think you can find a better person to do what she's doing. Right. And I, I think it's hard to compare, you know, her with someone in, you know, just of, of a different type of, I don't know, like a type of acting is a weird thing to say because acting is acting. Right. But I think that if you, she can, I'm sure she can do it all, but you want her doing very specific things in the movies you have her for just, and that's true for like pretty much every actor or actress. And I just think that if you want this type of performance, you're not going to find anyone who's going to do it better than Francis McDormand. And that's, I think I'll, I'll probably just leave it at that. Um, but yeah, look, there's other people in the cast, you know, I can't say there's a bunch of other actors in the cast because I suppose some of them aren't really acting since they're really just being themselves. But before we get to the sort of real life fan dwellers, would love to, to take a moment and say, do you have any thoughts you want to share on, Dave, Williams College alumnus, David Strathairn. 
I think David Strathairn is a wonderful actor. I have for many years. He's one of those character actors, right, who you may not know his name, but when you see him pop up, you're like, oh, yeah, I've seen him in X, Y, Z, right? Like, I think the first thing I remember seeing him in is the Bourne films, of course. Um, but, you know, I, I, the one time he did sort of step in front of the uh, the camera for, you know, the, the lead role, right, uh, Good Night and Good Luck, he played Edward R. Murrow. He got an Oscar nomination. I think that's a supremely underrated um, historical film that people should really see. Uh, but I think he just offers a very unique and often very warm presence on screen. Um, and that's exactly what you get with this character of Dave here. Um, I think he's, you know, a consist a consistent person. And this is kind of one of the themes of the movie, right? Is like these people that she's encountering, they just kind of pop up here and there, right? Like you never know when you're going to see someone again, because there's just kind of this whole community. Uh, that's the whole, you know, that's the whole concept of the movie that Bob Wills kind of talks about in the end. That, you know, I'll see you down the road, right? Um, who knows where down the road is? It might literally be physically down the road, 100 miles away or something. It might be down the metaphysical, spiritual road, right? Like after you've passed on or, you know, something like that, which is kind of the angle we get with Swanky, right? Because, you know, we learn about her character and that she's sort of at the end of her life um, for medical reasons. Um but David Strathairn, I think, is, again, a, a very warm, inviting presence, uh, which is important, right? Because I think, you know, she he, he is, again, uh, an example of like, here's a uh, comfortable life. Here's, a, here's the possibility of a comfortable life for Fern. Um, you know, he offers for her to come live with him and his family um, and this, you know, lovely home. They seem to have a great relationship uh, and everything together it is likely that she would be very happy there. Um, and, you know, I think we, we as the audience are, you know, supposed to be as torn as she is and maybe, you know, even want her, be leaning towards wanting her to, to stay. Um, I don't think that Fern, like I think, I think Fern is, 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 can be a difficult character at times, right? Because of her struggles with these decisions. But, um, but uh, that, none of that works, right? If, if David Strathern's performance, I think is uh, so, open-hearted um and you know I, I like some of the the revelations we find out about his character and his relationship with his son um and just the you know the bonding that he has with um with fern feels very very natural right and it never goes it, it, you know it never goes down like the romantic path at least that's not what i um ever gathered from any of their scenes in the movie and i appreciated that right they're just kind of like two uh, you know, like-minded souls who have connected, um, you know, uh, living this sort of similar nomadic life. Um, and so I think his, he, he, his presence, his character, his performance are all very welcome additions to the film. Yeah. I think the way that I would describe the performance sort of just going off your last point is that it, I think that you could probably debate whether there is a romantic tinge to what this character of Dave is trying to do. I think that, I think that there are, hints of that there. But I think most relevant and most important for this character is that there's just a lot of earnest, like it's, it's, he's like very earnest, he's like a very earnest person. And, you know, whether he's looking for a romantic or, you know, platonic companion, I think you could debate that it's maybe not even really the point. But I think that there's something there's something about this life evangeling, at least I think that you see that throughout all the characters is that it makes you a really earnest, open and like, communicative and like an honest way person. And I'm not saying that, you know, everyone is like an open book or anything. Right. But like, it, it doesn't really feel like you're holding any cards close to your chest or yeah. keeping secrets. And it's just, I, I feel like it, it's just a really striking 
you know, way of going about your life that feels very foreign, right? To to the way that, you know, I, I, I perceive people live their lives who are at least, you know, more relatable to me. And I find that to be really interesting. And I find that to be, it may, it, it does make me want, I guess in a, in a typical film that might make me wonder how engineered is this story, right? But like when you actually see it, you know, the real life people going along with what Fern and Dave and other people are living out on screen, I think it, it makes you question that a little bit less, or at least it makes you trust it a little bit more. And I find that, again, that sort of that earnest way of life to be really refreshing because a lot of times I just think that so much of life can be super exhausting and that could be like circumvented if, again, this sort of like open style of communication is more you know prevalent and more accepted and less judged in a lot of ways. Because I think that if someone came up to you and, and interacted with you the way that Dave sort of like interacts with Fern or even these other people, right? interact with Fern. I think that that would be pretty jarring for a lot of people. Um, but I think that goes along with this like whole notion of a radical way of living that van dwelling is and, and trying to, again, push back on the margins or and we'll get more about this later on when we talk about the themes, but, you know, pushing back on the margins of, you know, the sort of the crush that they feel of the capitalist society, you know, on them. So I, I think it's a really interesting, I, I, I should say, I think that is a really interesting component of the movie. And I think one that's like really important and and sort of central to and driven by David Strathairn's performance. So yeah, it's really, really good performance. I don't think this is getting talked about much in the actor category. I would say the, the best supporting actor category is a, is a pretty strong one this year. So that's not a terrible surprise, I'd say. Yeah. And I mean, you know, just going again, going off of what I was saying, I, I, I like the scene, right, where he finally just sort of opens up at the end and when he asks her to stay, right, it's not like, uh, oh, I love you or whatever, you know, like yeah. you might see in a more melodramatic film. It's like, I think you're a good person. I like being around you. Yeah. I think you'd be comfortable here, right? Like, it's, it, again, it feels it feels very real and natural. And again, not overly melodramatic or like uh, we're going, we're trying to force together. Like, because yeah. this is the part of the movie that they could force together, right, with you know, they, you have the, the actors here in this part of the movie. Um, I mean, yeah, that, but, that literally is what happens, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, Chloe Zhao, again, just sort of lets her characters be who they are, which I really appreciate. Yeah, definitely the movie is better for it. But stepping away from the actors, you know, in quotation marks, of the film and talking about these real-life characters who are such an integral part, especially early on, to Fern's journey, there are three of them. Swanky, uh, Linda May, and then Bob Wells, who does come back at the end as well, and is a little bit more of like a quote, unquote, you know, if there is such a thing as a famous person in the van dwelling world, it seems like he's one of those people. Uh, but Scott, I mean, I've talked about what I think that this sort of, you know, these real life figures, you know, how much of their real life experience is coming into it, I don't know. It's probably not 100%, but it's probably a reasonable amount, I think it's safe to say. Like, what do you think this adds to the movie? And, and what did you think of the, the appearances of these people? Yeah, no, I mean, I think they're all really affecting in their own ways. Linda May just is someone who is a good friend to Fern along the way. And again, just one of those kind of in the same way that Dave was kind of those comforting presences you see uh, and which are kind of her anchors to this life. Right. Like uh, the, the people who are like, oh, the people who make you think, well, you know, if she decides to continue with her nomadic life, you know, she has these people um, who care about her out here on the road like Linda May. Um, Swanky, I think, again, presents sort of the maybe the more grim reality of the situation, right? Which is that, yeah. you know, 
for some, for a lot of these people. And, you know, this is something that I don't really see getting talked about a lot in the movie, but I think uh, uh, in the conversation around the movie, but I think deserves to be talked about is that, you know, most of the characters in this movie are elderly, right? Um, and that's not something that we see in, in a lot of movies, right? Where I, I think, you know, that this movie in some ways is really reckoning with um, the place that these people are in their lives. And I love the, you know, the compassion with which it depicts the elderly on screen, um, all of these people. Um, but Swanky, again, she presents sort of the grimmer reality that, hey, I only have a few months left, but at the same time, there's uplift to it as well, right? She's, I'm gonna make the most of this. I'm gonna, you know, appreciate beauty. I'm gonna go out to this lake and, you know, there, see these eggshells falling um, and, yeah, it's going to be this sort of serene, beautiful image. And yeah, I, and that's, that was one of the more emotional moments of the movie for me when sort of all of that comes back around towards the end and they're at the fire and paying tribute to her. Um, yeah, that really got to me. And then Bob Wells, right? Like that might be the scene of the movie, right? Towards the very end where he opens up to her, right? Cause he's this sort of, like you said, he's this sort of larger than life, like cult figure almost among these van dwellers he's out here you know among them all sort of giving them advice talking about like like philosophizing about what this life is really about um and he just seems like a little bit almost closed off from what the rest of these people are experiencing but then in this you know scene at the very end he opens up to fern about um his his son and his son you know killing himself and um just the the raw emotion that we see from him in this scene, you know, again, it, 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 it feels like that could have only come from someone who is not an actor and who um, has really experienced either exactly what he is describing or something very similar he is describing. Again, I don't know exactly what Bob Wells' whole story is, um, but that felt like that felt like an especially powerful moment in the movie, right? To see this person, like I said, that seems more distance from what a lot of the, the experiences that a lot of the other um, people are having open up and be like, no, actually I, I'm, you know, I'm out here because I've been on, through hardships, just like all, all of you have. Fern, you've lost your, you know, your husband. I've lost my son. Um, yeah. Everybody's out here for a reason, right? Um, it's, it's, you know, not, not just necessarily because, you know, economically they've been forced out, right? Um, I think that is, you know, again, one of the thrusts of the movie is that if it was just about the economic aspect of it, right? Fern could settle down with her, her family, with uh, Dave and his family. Uh, and, you know, she she could live uh, a comfortable life and be taken care of. But there's something out here personally that, you know, being on the road, that being in this community fills a place in her life that is gone with her husband not there anymore. Um, and I think that is, you know, again, that is one of the interesting things that the film explores is about why why are all of these individual people out here on the road? Uh, because it's not just because they're forced to be because not all of them are forced to be a lot of them have chosen to be out here yeah I, one of the things that i think really maybe we're skipping a little bit but i think it's honestly it's probably fine to just to go ahead and go this direction yeah. is that i think one of like the main driving forces of this movie is not like all right what do you need to do to like you said like get by economically because when we say get by well a lot of what time what we mean by that is like how do you make ends meet how do you get you know survive the next day the next week the next month right like and there certainly is an element of that. Like, I don't mean to diminish that aspect of the film, 
But I think where the like the really powerful moments in this film come from, and what I think the film is really trying to say is that you know we live in this capitalist society, and you know our little camp or like RV park of van dwellers isn't going to be able to like overthrow or disrupt this capitalist system. So like in that system, in this sort of churn of like, all right, going and working at these, you know, being a seasonal worker at the Amazon plant or being, you know, an employee of the, of the RV park in South Dakota or wherever, I think it was at the Badlands. It's, South a, Dakota. it's a national park. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like whatever seasonal jobs you're getting by, like you're not trying to subvert the system. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to find a way outside of that system to feel fulfilled with your life. And I think such a driving part of the movie. And, and I think it's something that you've touched on, you know, some, you know, even, even at some points ex explicitly is like, what do these people need to feel fulfilled in their life? And I think that there's like a whole other side conversation probably of um, about like psychology and, and the psychology of aging and getting older in different stages of development. That's, you know, my brain goes to, cause that's what I studied in, in college, but we don't necessarily need to get into here, but I think there's probably a really good reason why a lot of these people are elderly in these communities and, you know, have gotten to a point in their lives where they have, you know, they have lived certain stages of their lives and they have found themselves in positions where they don't really fit into the system anymore. Right? Like they, they aren't set up for success in the system of, you know, American capitalist society. And so they recognize that they still have to get by within that system, but how they get by, how they feel fulfilled, how they go on with their lives is through these types of communities. Right. And, and sure, that provides some sort of like economic liberation to an extent because you're living out of your van. You know, it, you don't have to buy real estate and property and things like that. Like it does. Certainly there is an aspect of that. Like that's I don't want to say I don't want to completely diminish that. But the re but like you said, you know, if, if that was all that it was, if it was just about finding a way to live, you know, paycheck to paycheck or however you want to think about that. Right? Like Fern could have stayed, um, you know, with her sister, with Dave. But there is something else that's sort of like intangible fulfillment that she's seeking that she can't find by sitting still, um, you know, in, in this system and in this lifestyle. And something that that Dave, you know, lived years and years and years probably in, in that lifestyle or we're, le we're led to believe that and then found his meaning, right? Like found fulfillment in going back to his family and being a grandfather, right? There's the whole conversation in the kitchen and whatnot. And so I, I just think that there's something really special and what, or, or I should say, what makes this film really special is that it's not about trying to shine a light on how the economically poor, uh, or like a, a specific group that is economically poor, gets by. It's 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 something much more than that. And I found that to be probably the most powerful part of the movie. And to tie it back to my original question, then I know we kind of jumped forward into some of the themes that I want to talk about a little bit later. I mean, we're here now, but to tie it back to the part about the the real, like the realistic component of having these real life figures, you know, famous and not famous as they may be come in is it, is it provides, I feel like it, it provides a sort of foundation or a grounding point to be able to have that conversation from like a narrative fictional perspective with Fern. Um, when you have like these sort of like guideposts of ways to live by in this way. And I think Bob is certainly a huge part of it. it it's a little bit off putting, even though I, I also agree that probably is the most moving scene in the film. It's a little bit off putting for it to like really go documentary, like in that scene. Like it's just like a camera trained on him and he's and I can't imagine that he's not just telling, you know, verbatim a story from his life. Um, and it's a little bit jarring, but it's so arresting that you sort of get over that pretty quickly, I think. Um, and the fusion of, like I said, sort of like narrative feature and, you know, documentary features really interesting with this movie. And uh, it certainly it certainly leaves a leaves an impression.
Yeah, no, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, you know, and, uh, you know, we see that like these places that they end up working, right? Like Amazon and, you know, like you mentioned, the National Park and yeah. a wall the drug, kitchen. which I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Wall drug store, which I understand is kind of a famous tourist attraction. That's the thing right there. There are these sort of touristy things. It almost like is paralleling how we like view the elderly as like, oh, here's, you know, somebody who might be able to offer like an, an attraction in a way, sort of like they might be able to offer some funny stories or something from their past or whatever. But ultimately they, you know, we don't see them staying in one place for a long time because there's really just not room for them or not a place for them to like burrow down and become like a, you know, lifelong employee of Amazon or, um, you know, write out the rest of their days at the national park, because I think, you know, again, there's an expiration date, not to be, you know, callous about it, but there's an expiration date on these people's like, uh, use usefulness to society, the way that, um, things are structured right now. Uh, and that's why that's an, another reason, you know, in addition to the fact that like, you know, these characters, they just love the freedom of the open road, right? Like, I think that's, that's the thing that is filling in that gap in their lives is the freedom. Um, because probably for the last however long of their lives, they've been sort of entrenched in a conventional domestic lifestyle, maybe of, um, you know, probably being in a relationship, working a job, whatever, having children. Uh, and now, you know, maybe they've lost a spouse, maybe they've lost a child, maybe their children have grown and moved away like Dave's has, um, and he's a little distance for them, whatever it is, um, they are, you know, sort of unshackled from the chains that maybe, um, you know, kept them in this more traditional lifestyle, which again, has its, you know, has its ups and downs, of course. And was probably um, but, fulfilling for these people at sure. certain points in their lives, just not now. And yeah, in the same way that like, you know, growing up, I think being in your teenage or early 20s, you know, has sort of a, there's a free form quality to it. Like I want to experience so much now while I can. Yeah. Uh, I think this is the other end of that spectrum, right? Where um, now that you've been through the, the 30, 40 years, whatever of a traditional um, you know, more comfortable lifestyle. Um, now again, you find yourself with the sort of freedom. And I think that's, that's an interesting concept because there's so many movies about, you know, the, fr the front half of that, right. Again, about coming of age movies about teens growing up, you know, people in their twenties sort of growing up, experiencing life. Um, but I think getting to see the other end of the spectrum is, it's kind of liberating. And I think, I think that Chloe Zhao is able to walk like this really fine line of like never diminishing the real uh, hardships and like the, you know, again, negative structures, economic structures, whatever you want to call it, that have led to people being in this position. I don't think she ever diminishes the reality of that. Uh, but she's also able to, to demonstrate how, hey, this life isn't so bad for some people, right? Some people are finding something out there that... Um, they can't find in a in a normal stable life, um, and I think that's a really difficult line to walk. Um, but she's able to to pull it off. Um, like I said, I think it's a remarkable feat. Yeah, and and I think kind of the last again we've we've jumped around a little bit from what I had originally mentally planned out in the conversation, which is totally fine. I think it's probably better. The conversation is probably better for it. But the last thing I do want to touch on is something that I've mentioned a couple times. And I kind of want to get your thoughts more on Chloe Zhao's just like 
filmmaking style, you were kind of touching on it right there. Uh, but to dive into it a little bit more, it, it is really striking how she's able to, you know, expose this way of living, right? Like this van dwelling community in a non-judgmental way that it really just feels like it, it shows you something and allows you to do with it what you will, right? Like, sure, there's probably a, you know, you could draw whatever conclusions you want. Ultimately, there's probably more correct conclusions to draw from what she's filming, um, or at least a more correct one. But I think that it, it is a really interesting way to do it. And I think part of that, again, is going back to sort of that documentary almost feel to it, which I don't want to say is unique to this film, but it certainly stands out in this film. And I'd love to get some of your more thoughts on whether you think that's effective. Could the film have been even more effective if it doesn't sort of try to you know, jump out of the sort of fictional drive of, of the movie or the narrative drive of the movie for these sort of like, I, again, like expose moments, like we talked about with Bob Wells, right? But I think you get them with all of these sort of real life characters of Swanky and well, I guess really less so Linda May and mainly Swanky, but Swanky and Bob Bob Wells. Do you think that is effective because it feels like a different kind of filmmaking in those particular moments? Do you disagree with the premise of my question? I don't know. Maybe you do. Uh, but they felt different to me when, when you get to those moments. Yeah. I mean, again, I think it's just about that central idea of freedom, right? And there's yeah. a, a freedom, a physical freedom that the open road uh, and not being chained to, you know, whatever they've been chained to in the past has. But there's also a freedom of expression. And I think that naturally leads to these moments where they're opening up and there's these sort of long monologues that, again, don't feel like um you know the long monologue in like pieces of a woman or ma rainey's black bottom or something right like these uh more dramatized films which have you know long monologues that seem to be for the purpose of hyping up their actors it just feels like oh here's a natural moment between two people um and someone is you know again opening up to another person not in a showy ostentatious way just in a uh, here's here's I am talking to you. I'm having a conversation. I want to share something with you because I feel a connection with you and this life that we're living. Um, and look, I've gone 50 minutes or something without saying this, but her directorial style is Linklaterian uh, in a lot of ways in this film. I think um, you know the the passage of time, right? I think is a big thing. Obviously, time is one of the biggest ideas in Linklater's films, and um, how organically it passes in his movies. I think it's, it's the same thing here, right? We're not, we're not like blocking out like, Oh, now it's two weeks after this, two weeks after this. It's just, it's it, very random. it all flows together, right? Like, it's just like, we're going to, you know, go, we're going to jump from one moment to the next. Um, and uh, I, I really appreciate that because that's how real life passes. Um, like you said, the, the openness, the non-judgmental, you know, view that she takes of all her characters, the communal feel to the whole thing. I think that's, you know, stuff that is from Linklater's films as well. Um, so, uh, you know, you understand why I love it as much as I do. But yeah, no, I think I think Chloe Zhao, um, you know, as much as, again, I think uh, Linklater is able to, um, he's able to make these films that are plotless, that seem plotless, that seem aimless, but also he's in control the whole time. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows... Um, when to sort of go for the big moment, when to be more restrained, when to just sort of let the mundane or the, you know, again, in this film, it's just like the tracking shots and stuff like when, when to let those speak for themselves. And I think that's 
shows that Chloe Zhao has a very, very encouraging career to come. This is only her third film. Um, and I think that, you know, it, her her willingness to just sort of let her film breathe um, it shows a maturity in filmmaking beyond probably where you would expect someone to be at their third film in their career. So. Yeah, and she'll be going a very different place with her fourth feature film. Yeah, I'm so I'm so out. intrigued and also skeptical about what what's going to come out of this. But uh, you know, again, Marvel movies aren't going anywhere, so uh, we might as well try and put some of the most interesting auteur directors um, out there on them because I think that's the direction that Marvel should be going and is sort of already already going right with the sort of really quirky out there feel that a lot of WandaVision has had um, and it's working out for them. Right. I think I think they have a chance to use their platform right to highlight artists like Chloe Zhao um, and yeah. Destin Daniel Cretton and people like that and to introduce people to styles of filmmaking that otherwise they would be otherwise closed off from like that, that they may never watch Nomadland, but now that they you know watch the eternals they might be like hey wait a minute like this this is something different i am intrigued by the people who created this this is not what i'm used to seeing from you know marvel from the mcu um and then seek out other works and open up whole new worlds of film to them i may be being overly optimistic about what actually is going to come of this but uh i think i i hope that disney and marvel i hope that they let their creators create um, because that is, that is my one concern, I guess, with when I see people like Chloe Zhao doing this or Barry Jenkins doing the Lion King sequel or whatever. Um, I, think, I think it's a prequel, but yeah. Whatever. Um, you know, are they going to let their creators use the, the extent of the vision that they have shown in Moonlight or, you know, Nomadland, the writer, whatever. Yeah. Look, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I shouldn't say I don't know. Like Chloe Zhao, Francis McDormand, the cat, the cast, the crew, etc. They all slept in vans while they were making this movie, and I just want to know: Will they be staying in outer space uh, while they were while <laughs> while they were filming the Eternals? Were they in super method? <laughs> yeah. All right. What's your favorite scene or moment? Gosh, it's hard. There's there's so many great moments, and again, it it just sort of it, it flows together so organically. Um, but. Um, there's there's one moment where they're when she's working at the Badlands where they kind of are talking her and Linda May I think are both there and they're talking to these random women right like they're not characters that you ever see anywhere else in the movie but um, she's talking to to Fern about her her husband and the, the her wedding ring right and um, you know Fern has obviously opened up to her about losing her husband and stuff like that and she just sort of offers this sort of folksy wisdom that I found just so like wonderful about like, you know, that ring right there, like, you know, you're going to, you're going to keep that on. Cause that's a reminder. You probably couldn't even take that ring off if you wanted to. Right. Um, because you know, that's, that's what your husband has meant to you. And he's always going to be a, a reminder to you along the road. Um, and I found that a really affecting moment. I also think that the ending of the movie, you know, again, there's, we've talked about some of the succession of scenes there, the fireside scene where they sort of pay tribute to Swanky and say, we'll see you down the road, Bob Wells, his opening up. And then just the final shot of the movie, right. With her sort of walking off into this vast, uh, sort of like wilderness area. Uh, we just sort of watch as she starts walking off and just grows smaller and smaller. Again, the world is her oyster. 
uh, in a sense, after she's been back to her old home, right? She's gone back to visit her old home at the end and she just sort of walks off into the distance. Um, and I found that to just to be a perfect note for the film to end on, um, you know, after what you've seen over the last hour and 50 minutes. Yeah, I was going to go with the last scenes. I think I kind of said it earlier too, that that scene, the series of scenes at the end with Bob Wells, the campfire scene, which he's in attendance at for sort of like Swanky's memorial, if if you will. And then, you know, the the one-on-one -on -one conversation that Fern has with him about you know, sort of mean the meaning of all of it and loss and whatnot. And they kind of share their experiences and, and their loss, which I found just really powerful. And uh, yeah, it's really, really good stuff. I think I already know what you're going to be rating this one. So go ahead. What are you giving Nomadland? Yeah, this is a 10 out of 10 easily. Um, best film of 2020, if we're counting it towards 2020, which I think we might as well because of award season. But what I would say to you is, uh, if you haven't seen this film yet, uh, try to simulate the theatrical. If you can't watch it in a theater, if you're not comfortable or theaters aren't open, whatever, um, Try to simulate the theatrical experience as much as possible, right? Turn off the lights, put your phone away, maybe even be alone, right? Because I think this is a movie that um, you need to just surrender everything to and just sort of let it wash over you um, so that you can, you know, really just immerse yourself like the film wants you to be immersed. And I think if you do that, if you, if you give the sort of commitment that it asks, um, then you will have, like I said, an experience that is truly profound and goes beyond even just pure movie going, I think. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair way to recommend the movie to people. I mean, most people are going to be watching it in their homes on, on Hulu, which is where it is available now. But what, yeah, what I'd say is, you know, turn off the lights, like don't check your phone, which I'd recommend as much as possible when you're watching movies, I guess. But uh, especially for this one, because I think that sitting in, you know, the, the moment to momentness of it all and not having the distractions to take you away, I think it, it does amplify the experience, maybe even more so than it might normally. For me, I am giving it a 9.4. Really, really good film. All right, Scott, I think with that, that should be it for our discussion of Nomadland. I'm sure we'll be talking about it some more next week. We're talking about the Golden Globes, which it is nominated at. We're eventually going to be talking about our own awards for the year that is still coming down the pike. And uh, so there will be plenty more to talk about Nomadland in the future, I suspect. But for now, let's take a short break. And when we return, we'll be back with awards updates. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As I mentioned before the break, we're talking about awards. Scott uh, hasn't gotten his fix in the last month, so we got to give him that fix now, Scott. We'll start with the Golden Globe Awards nominations. That's actually coming up next week, so good time to be talking about them, I suppose. We'll start there. We'll see if the conversation takes us to other award shows, but why don't you uh, fill us in? What happened? Oh, what didn't happen is probably a better question because all hell broke loose as it seems to normally do. And a lot of this right with the Golden Globes comes from the fact that everything is split up into the musical or comedy category and the drama category. So I think, you know, normally that creates for some weird stuff. When you factor in that we had a pandemic, right, and there were movies that didn't come out, uh, I think the, uh, the musical or comedy uh, category was even thinner than usual. 
Um, yet even still, the fact that uh, you know a couple of films in here got nominated is is been the subject of much ire. One being the Prom, right, which is sort of Ryan Murphy. You know, uh, Ryan Murphy and his he has the Murphy verse basically at this point uh, with the amount of content that he churns out. Uh, but it's this you know bloated, overlong musical, from what I understand, uh, with you know James Corden and Meryl Streep and Nicole Kidman and all of these big name stars. And it hasn't won the support of, you know, a whole lot of people, but the, you know, at least with the prom, the critics reviews are like middling to slightly above average for it. Then we have music, right? Which is this new Sia directed film uh, starring Maddie Ziegler, who's the young girl who appeared in all of Sia's very famous viral music videos. This is arguably the most reviled movie to like ever get this sort of nomination at the Golden Globes. And that's saying something, right? Because there's been some really crazy stuff over the years happening with like The Tourist being an example of that that uh, Johnny Depp and Angelina Jolie movie from a few years back of a movie with, you know, very, very low critic scores. But it's not just the bad reviews for music, right? It is the problematic what seems to be extremely problematic overtones in the film of having maddie ziegler who's a not i mean who's doesn't have any sort of uh disabilities playing a autistic person um in what seems to be a very sort of exploitative um and perhaps um over dramatic fashion that you know again doesn't do any sort of justice um to the the autistic community um, that seems to be aroused. I mean, this movie has a 1.0 average on Letterboxd right now. A 1.0, that has got to be one of the lowest of any film with the number of reviews that it has on Letterboxd. And so it, the fact that it is getting acknowledged in these categories and Kate Hudson as well is getting nominated for her performance. Um, like, I just, I don't even know. These, these people are even less connected to reality than they have ever been. Like, in terms of the Hollywood foreign press in terms of their voting. Like it, it, it really does make it clear, I guess, that this is just sort of a, a money game, right? A, a financial game to some extent, right? And I, I imagine that music probably had a good amount of, of my, is, is it, it's a Netflix, am I right about that? Um, or uh, am I making that up? I think you're making that up. Okay. Uh, I thought it was on a streaming service, but anyway, it, it probably had a good amount of money behind it. And what they got in return for that is the nominations. But, you know, I guess that is sort of the thing that immediately jumps out to me uh, because of how egregious it is. Um, looking on the dramatic side of things, you know. Sorry, I sorry. Think... Hold on. One, hold on one second before we move on from this. Not to give yeah, 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 it too much attention, but Leslie Odom Jr. is in this film. Like, what on earth is this movie? Like, it's crazy that Leslie Odom Jr. is in a film that is controversial, not only for the autistic um, commentary. I guess commentary is not the right way to put it, but this portrayal of autism. Um, but also, there at least has been some talk, although to less of an extent compared again to the to the portrayal of autism, of like Maddie Ziegler's character wearing blackface in the film is also apparently a controversial part of it, which is just like wild. Generally, wild when somebody me. wears blackface, it's controversial. I, I would go out on a limb and say that. But well, yeah, it's, it's not Leslie, wild that it's controversial. It's wild that yeah. the film did it. <laughs> speaking of uh, Leslie Odom Jr. too, right? I just glossed over the fact right, that Hamilton is nominated in the best comedy or musical category, which of yeah. course, you know, has sparked a lot of debates about whether it's a film or not. Frankly, I'm not really interested in that conversation. The only thing I'm interested uh, in, though, is that 
if we're going to count Hamilton as a film, why on earth is David Byrne's American Utopia not nominated over freaking prom, the prom or music? Um, I mean, I think that's that's absolutely absurd. Of course, the other nominees in this category, Borat, subsequent movie film, Palm Springs, two films I like quite a bit. Um, yeah. So I, I, you know, you won't see me complaining in there. Um, but David Byrne's American Utopia was, you know, one of the most joyous things. I don't know how anyone could not feel overjoyed by watching that. But um, I guess, you know, again, they didn't watch it, I'm sure. So um and then with the dramatic category, Scott, uh, you know, it's more what we expect to see right in the Oscar race and what we've seen along the other award shows this year. The Father, Mank, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, The Trial of the Chicago Seven, right? All of these films, I think, are in the running for Best Picture nominations um, when the Oscars come around. I think in particular, um, Nomadland and the trial of the Chicago seven. I mean, those might be the top two front runners right now. I think in the, in the best picture race, arguably, uh, I think promising really? young woman. That's shocking, but yeah. Interesting. No, I mean, what would you say? Are the front runners? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm just not seeing that much actual like down, like down ballot nominations and hype around trial of chicago seven not that that's required to get to be a front runner for best picture don't get me wrong but i don't like are any of their of their acting you know ensemble yes. going to be nominated sasha baron cohen i think is a, is a lock almost at this point for a best supporting actor nomination um i wouldn't be surprised to, you know i think mark rylance has some buzz and you know, even Yaya Abdul-Mateen. I think it's probably a long shot for them to get in there. But There's I also no way think that people get nominated. I also think it, that's the nature of this being a more ensemble-based film, right? Is that maybe not, there's not the one performance. Although it does seem like Sasha Baron Cohen's is the one performance that they're pointing to. But yeah, Scott, I, I know you weren't crazy about the film. I mean, I don't think it deserves to be up at the top of the best picture I think most race, people weren't crazy by, about this film. By far. A lot of people thought it was good. I don't, I don't disagree yeah. with you. And that's the yeah. point I'm trying to make, right? I think it's a good film. Yeah. I enjoy it quite a bit. I probably enjoy it more than most people. But uh, I, I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm not trying to mistake the fact that I, you know, don't think the movie deserves to be up there for the legitimate belief, at least on my part, that yes, it is one of the top two front runners, I think right now. And it, it just, it seems like the type of movie in, I mean, I think it's a superior film to Green Book, certainly, but it is it does have that Green Book type feel to it. Right. Of the historical drama, somewhat safe, um, but, uh, you know, has these sort of big rousing moments and, you know, ultimately is kind of a feel good story, I think, in the end. Um, I, I, you know, that maybe sort of irons over the more difficult parts of the history, um, I think that you could certainly say that about both of those films. And it just seems like a, a film that Oscar voters will probably gravitate towards, you know, again, Sorkin's an established name. Um, so I do, I do think it's up there. I, I think I would still say Nomadland is the front runner right now, but I think I would put Trial of the Chicago 7 at number two. And then, you know, beyond that, I think it's it probably gets a little more muddled. A little bit. I mean, Promising Young Woman, for whatever reason, has a lot of buzz around it for sure but i think if it's going to be awarded um that perhaps either the screenplay category or the uh best actress for carrie mulligan i think are probably the the two categories where promising young woman probably has the most going for it um but scott you know again in the acting categories dramatic wise kind of what we expect to see 
Um, again, the the best actress in a drama motion picture, I think it will almost, you know, directly mirror the Oscars here. You have Viola Davis in Ma Rainey, you have Vanessa Kirby, you have Frances McDormand, and you, you have Carrie Mulligan, and then you have Andrew Day in the United States versus Billie Holiday. She might be the one that you could cycle out, but I mean, I think she has certainly has a chance to get nominated for the Oscar as well. But I think, you know, though that's the sort of chalky category that maybe you expect to see there um, with, you know, best best actor in a, in a, or best actress in a drama. Um, again, moving down the list a little bit, some of the more head scratching nominees, I think, uh, best supporting actor, um, Jared Leto coming out of nowhere, right. For this movie, the little things, which, uh, is doing the theatrical HBO max thing right now. Um, John Lee Hancock crime drama. He plays a killer. Um, he plays, Not, you know, well, he does question mark. Like is he, he or is he not? Yeah. He, yeah. he, he plays Jared Leto. Um, and That's for sure. I, I think it's, it's absolutely shocking that this has happened, Scott, because we've both seen this film now and this is just the most nothing film, right? Like it is, it is borrowing so many things from other much superior films and just doesn't have a hint of originality or adventure to it at all. Like they they are perfectly content with just being like warmed over remains of all these other films. Uh, and so for for Jared Leto, who's doing again, we've seen Jared Leto do this character many times before. We've seen other actors do, you know, variations on this character many times before for him to be in. the I, Like, I don't get it. I don't get it. I, 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 you know, I don't think that Jared Leto is is that great of an actor. Um, and I don't understand why this buzz is following him around because he got the Golden Globe and the SAG nomination for this performance. I still don't think he's going to get the Oscar nomination. I don't. I think the the buzz around this has just been too strongly negative. Um, but it is just kind of laughable, right, to see him in there alongside Daniel Kaluuya in Judas and the Black Messiah, right, or Leslie Odom Jr. in One Night in Miami. Um, you know, even Sasha Baron Cohen, I think, in, in Trial of the Chicago 7 kind of just blows this performance away. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that, that's one of the one of the crazier things on the dramatic side in terms of performances getting nominated. Uh, what else do you want to highlight here, Scott? I mean, you know, there's there's plenty to talk about, certainly. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to talk about Daniel Kaluuya all day if we reserve some time on the podcast for that. At a, you know, even though we spent an hour talking about Judas and the, I mean, not that much, but Judas and Lucas had before. He's amazing. Look, I just think that this. I, here's the thing. Here's the thing is that I think there's some obvious exclusions from this category. I mean, Paul Racy or Rocky, I've heard it pronounced both ways. I don't actually know how it's pronounced, uh, is one of them. At least Riz Ahmed got the nomination in the lead category. I, I wish I, w I wish you were the favorite to this category, but I, I, I don't know. I don't know how Chadwick Boseman doesn't, doesn't win this at the end of the day. But yeah, I think Sound of Metal is an interesting contender. I'd love to see it rise, but it feels like it's like already peaked already. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, don't, so I, don't, I don't know how much uh, yeah. more momentum it's going to gain. Like Paul Racy had so much buzz there for a while. And now it seems like he's almost on the outside looking in, right? In the best supporting actor category. I wonder. It's not almost. He definitely is up on the outside looking yeah, in. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And, and look, I think, 
you know, there are some some positives and negatives to that. Like the positive, I think, is that like Daniel Kaluuya, right, who maybe is somebody that we weren't talking about a few months ago, mainly sure. because Judas and the Black Messiah had not come out, right? But now it's come out. It's come out at a good time. It's generating a lot of buzz for obvious reasons because it's an incredible film. He's incredible in it. So I think, you know, if you are swapping Paul Racy for Daniel Kaluuya, I think that's a very fair trade, right? Um but elsewhere, right, you you know, you look at the other nominees, you might point to some someone like a Sasha Baron Cohen, maybe, and say, uh, well, hey, that wasn't number one. That wasn't even the Sasha, best Sasha Baron Cohen performance of last year. And number two, Paul Racy, um, you know, probably deserves it more than he does. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't even point to Sasha Baron Cohen is the thing. Like, like, I, I don't think Bill Murray or Jared Leto are going to get nominated at the Oscars. But like, no. what are they doing here? <laughs> like, Sorry. Like what? what are, why are they here? Where they so the HFPA can like hang out with them? Newsflash, guys! <laughs> There's no in-person ceremony this year. On like, the uh, on, on the Sasha Baron Cohen topic, I do think an interesting thing to watch will be Maria Bakalova, right? Because I think she's going to win the Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy. I mean, I, I don't really think that she has much competition, right? Between Kate Hudson in music, between. Michelle Pfeiffer in French Exit between Rosamund Pike in I Care A Lot, which just came out, and then Anya Taylor-Joy and Emma. Like, I don't really see any of those people as challenging uh, Maria for this I one. can't wait for your brain to get blown when Kate Hudson wins this award. Can you imagine? Uh, but no, but <laughs> I, I, think, I think she has a genuine shot at this Oscar, right? Like, I, it's crazy, but I think that the there's, there's a lot of buzz around her performance. I think she is in the top two or three in terms of this, this best supporting actress race. Um, because yeah, I mean, that, that is one of the interesting things here, right? Is that she is listed as a best actress in a musical or comedy. I wonder if perhaps they uh, campaign for her as a lead actress here because of the split for musical or comedy, right? Um, whereas like the supporting categories do not have that split. Has that happened before, though? Can you can you campaign differently at different shows? That's I don't know, but I, but I am only hearing Maria Bakalova being talked about at Academy Wise for the best supporting category. Uh, and yeah, I mean, look, I you know I think it probably is a lead performance. To be honest with you, she has a lot of. I just rewatched the movie recently. She has arguably more screen time than than Sasha Baron Cohen does, um, and so I think it is a lead performance. But you know, again, I don't know exactly how. The, uh, you know, how everything is going to work out um, with the campaign and all that. Um, you know, talking about Best Supporting Actress, Scott, I think, I can't believe I'm saying it, but Glenn Close, right, is is going to be in here for Hillbilly Elegy. I think she's going to get the nomination. Um, if she gets the win, holy cow. Um, I mean, it, it is so, like, Oscars, Oscars woke. For, yeah. Like, Hillbilly Elegy is so Oscars woke. It would be the it would be the ultimate, right? Like of what people always talk about about how you know these actors who get nominated so many times and never win the performance that they win for is never actually the best one. It's just like, hey, we recognize that you've you know you probably have deserved this before, so we're going to give it to you now, right? Like we saw it with Joaquin Phoenix just last year at Joker. I mean Leonardo DiCaprio. I haven't seen The Revenant, but I would go out on a limb and say that he has he has several performances you know, among the ones that he was nominated for and among the ones he was not nominated for that were probably stronger performances than in The Revenant. Um, and I just wonder, like, again, I don't know exactly where she's trending right now, but could could this be the time for Glenn Close? You know, even though it's a terrible movie, 
could this sort of kitschy, stereotypical, sassy grandma role be what finally, you know, pushes her over the line to win the Oscar? Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, I think that Olivia Coleman is probably the favorite in this category. Not oh, I was going to say Amanda Seyfried. I think I, I, I think, think, I think in terms of I, I think in terms of like betting odds, Olivia Coleman is is okay. the front runner. Take that for what it's worth. But yeah, I, I think there are a couple names that would bubble up that I'd bet on before I bet on Glenn Close. But it, but again, this is we're not talking about the Oscars here in this particular conversation. But if you're talking about the Oscars and her winning an Oscar, go figure. I mean, huh, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Last note, maybe Scott is that you know we don't we're, we're more concerned with the movie side, but on the TV side. Uh, it was great to see that both Normal People and The Queen's Gambit are in there for uh, Best Limited Series. Um, you know, those were our two favorite uh, TV experiences of last year. Uh, I will small admit acts. that if something, yeah, Small Axe is also in there. If if The Undoing beats out Small Axe, Queen's Gambit, and Normal People, that will be the most irate I will get about anything. Because I could see it happening, right? I could totally see it happening. Um, yeah, I unfortunately but, could also see it happening, so I'll good, hold my tongue. Good Lord. Uh, <laughs> please, Hollywood Ford Press, please don't do it. You can give the freaking thing to Glenn Close. You can give it to Jared Leto. I don't really care. Just don't do that. Just don't give it to The Undoing. Uh, because, I mean, Glenn Close has won a Golden Globe before. Like, that. that's not that big. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, yeah, you, you know what I mean. But holy cow, uh, do those other three um, shows just absolutely blow uh blow the undoing out of the water. Anything yeah. else to add, Scott? Well, no, I was just going to echo what you were saying. And Unorthodox, which is the other show nominated in that category I hear, is also very good, although not one that I watched. Yeah, people were really upset about I May Destroy You not getting nominated here, um, which, you know, I, I've, again, I've heard talked about among the, the best shows of last year and, you know, uh, in several years. Um, I think uh, also being about african-american characters right and losing out to something about so something like the undoing right which is just like the epitome of like white privilege uh you know tv with the you know just about these rich white new york people um you know i i think you know there's there there's the 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 perpetual discourse that surrounds these award shows about um you know recognizing um more racially diverse stuff. Uh, you know, that this is one of the area, this is one of the categories where I've seen that flaring up the most in relation to these gold gloves. Yeah. I mean, without me destroy you, I, I haven't seen it. It's on my list. It, I was reading like the synopsis of it to see if I wanted to check it out. And like, it, it sort of, it just gave me a lot of, um, unbelievable vibes, less from a like criminal justice perspective and more from a, how do I recover from this traumatic event that happened to me in my life that like, I, I don't know, like I'm not interested in like the, like the outrage, like the, out, the outrage is just like, whatever. Like, I don't know. People weren't mad last year when unbelievable got, I mean, it, it got nominated, I suppose, but there was like no real, if it hadn't got nominated, no one would have said anything. Like, well, I, don't again, know. I think the racial aspect is part of why people are, are up in arms about this. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, look, the undoing was, I watched it. It was nice popcorn television. It doesn't deserve to be in, talked about in awards conversations also that much yeah i think that should just about uh do it scott oh okay you're done <laughs> okay i'm kidding <laughs> just messing with you uh, <laughs> anything else you want to add before we wrap up 
I mean, I didn't rant that much, did I? No, no, you you really didn't actually. You you kept it, you kept it in. But I mean, ne- look, this time next week, tune back in and uh, see if Scott rants some more. Almost certain <laughs> yeah. he almost certainly will be. That's true, because yeah, we'll actually be talking about the real thing next week. Uh, I don't have anything else to say, Scott, except go watch Nomadland um, and watch Judas and the Black Messiah. Right? If you've not watched that yet, it's been quite a while since we've had two movies of such high quality um that are just right there fingertips away from you uh two new movies um you know to to tune into and so um you know the weather's still not great take advantage of uh this opportunity and being indoors and all that and um watch you know some of the the great cinema that you maybe have missed out on for the past you know almost a year now that we've been in quarantine hey i think i think at the end of the day the best movies of 2020 came out they just came out a little bit later than they normally would have so fair enough there you go and with that that should wrap up episode 130 of some luck at scott where can people find you on twitter at scarby Dent. and i can be found at shelton 2013 over on twitter we're also on letterbox at those same places you can also find our podcast on twitter and on patreon at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods check out all the different reward tiers over there and see if you can support the podcast it helps us keep things going and if you choose not to support us over on patreon that's fine you can still find us on any of your podcast services where you uh listen to your podcasts we really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies we'll be back next week as we've already been teasing uh for some reason i don't even know why we acknowledge it uh with a recap of this year's golden globe awards but uh until then for scott harvey i'm scott shelton we'll see you next time see you down the road 